jazz. <laughs> All right. Well, before I pass out here, yep. Let's do this. Yeah. Welcome to Jazz Bastard Podcast 148. I'm Pat. I'm driving. Oh no, no, don't drive. Don't drive in podcast. That's dangerous, man. <laughs> no, I mean I'm driving on this podcast. So. All right, that's right. Yes. Mike is in charge. I he's behind the wheel. Uh we know who's wearing the trousers and uh, You're safe as houses. That's right, damn it. <laughs> We're definitely not eighties babies. And um why don't you tell the the fine listeners of this beautiful podcast what works we're going to talk about today? All right. So uh, first of all, let me explain. This is one of those where Pat and I felt we needed to get one in the vaults in advance of the inevitable fall crush, where at some point we can't do you know we can't do our every two weeks. So we're just, we're sandbagging one here. Typically, we collaborate on figuring out what we're going to listen to and talk about. But in this case, since it was a quick turnaround, I volunteered to just throw out four things that come on to the rotation for me recently. So I have this abstract and incredibly elaborate and not very interesting system for picking what music I listen to, <laughs> uh, or it's interesting to me, but not to anyone else. Anyway, so the four things are just stuff stuff that I've come across that's now back in the rotation for whatever reason, things I've had for a long time. So it's one of these potpourri podcasts, also known as Mike Gets to Torture Pat. Yay! Yay! So uh, I guess uh, starting from newest to oldest, we've talked about the next before, but we've got another of their albums. This one's recent. What, 2018, 2017? It's 18. I'm not sure if it's out in the wild yet or not, but it's it's definitely 18, yeah. We've got it. The next body, uh, another uh, single track opus, almost an hour long. So there's that. And then let's see, I think in, if we're going in reverse order, then Memory Vision, uh, Memory Slash Vision by Evan Parker and his electroacoustic ensemble uh, would be the next thing on the list. So we'll talk about that. That's that's where I thought I might hurt Pat a little bit since we know how much he likes noise. And then uh, in a concession to Pat's taste buds, there's Lee Konitz's Toot Sweet. Um, one of his many, many, many dates, duo dates with a piano player. In this case, the effervescent, irrepressible Michelle Petrucciani. And then finally, and again, this is just an example of just random shit ending up in my listening queue. The first disc from the complete modern jazz quartet on Prestige and Pablo. So this is early stuff from early collected stuff of the modern jazz quartet, whom I don't think we've talked about before or at right, least not I think we have that's right covered yeah. any of their albums so this is literally like what portions of their first three albums on prestige so it was some pretty interesting stuff on it them's the selections for today i'll ask you where do you want to start since oh, you captain my me, captain captain my captain why don't we go in reverse order because i feel like in a sense the modern jazz quartet is kind of the the quote-unquote biggest group and maybe save that for the end uh, sure. because they've got kind of the most historic and lengthy career so maybe uh the next body yeah let's that? talk about them the next talk body
remind me of their names. You know their names. I don't have the, the information right in front of me. But you I, I could look on the internet and tell you there's a trio uh, of people. I'm sorry. I see here. We're going to have to start actually preparing for these, aren't we? I did a little preparing, but you're <laughs> captain. And so, so I see. It's on me to prepare. Chris Fine. Abrahams on piano. Yes. Tony Buck on drums. And Lloyd Swanton on bass guitar and double bass. So those. And are I just want to dudes. point out that if you if you Google body and necks, a large proportion of the things that come up, at least on my server, are pornography. So. Oh, I was thought like pillows. You know, I've got a sore neck. Well, how do I fix this? It's softer pillows. There's tells you about pillows in the pornography. Yeah. It tells you what my browser has been doing lately. So anyway. <laughs> That's right. It knows what you're looking for. Yeah. It's like, is this, it's, it's, it's like a, it's like a little puppy. It brings it to you. It's like, is this what you wanted? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. But I, I need to learn about the next instead. So yes. yeah, we, it's not been that super long. It was a uh, podcast from Sweden that we talked about uh, an earlier work by the next silver water. Yes. And we did this at the uh, kind of, I had read uh, an article by Jeff Dyer, uh, a British novelist who is also a big jazz fan. Jeff spelled G-E-O-F-F, Dyer, D-Y-E-R. And he wrote a big piece in the New York Times Magazine, I don't know, three or four months ago or even longer, where he just sang the praises of the next. He just right. on and on and on. And so I thought, okay, let's let's find out what's what's the scoop here. And so, yeah, we picked up Silver Water and talked about that. And so now we're talking about body. And that was back on uh, that was back on podcast 133 where we talked about silver water. Yeah, that's not, that's not that long ago. 15 uh, podcasts is what 30 weeks, half a year, something yeah, like that. Year. Yeah. So anyway, I am afraid that I'm gonna just want to literally quote everything I said for silver water <laughs> or this particular review. I my sense, and I don't know if this if you share this sense, Dyer again. I'm gonna be complaining about British jazz writers tonight today on this podcast i'm going to <laughs> okay, be, be complaining a little bit about dyer i love dyer i love uh, you know we both read his jazz book which is okay and i his piece in the new york times his breathless piece in the new york times I, I wasn't smitten with the old necks when i listened to them i thought they're fine but i didn't think they were the the saviors of jazz or the next coming of anything. I just think they're a really good trio who are really responsive to one another. They listen well and they play these long organic freeform works that kind of evolve in this, I would say almost logical fashion. I'm, I'm not surprised often by the way these, these albums develop bodies the same way. I would say that it sometimes in the drums feels like it has a little more rock content this time. Yeah. And that's just because of the insistence of uh, certain figures that the drummer plays on, on the hi-hat um, and on the, on the cymbals. But the bass and the piano, this actually feels a little more 
and there's some organ, there's some other electronic stuff kind of thrown in here. This feels a little more sedate, a little less frenzied affair than Silverwater altogether. But it, it does kind of ebb and flow and ease into and out of its movements, very much like if you were watching a lava lamp and you got really <laughs> high, you would feel really comfortable listening to this because it kind of has that groovy feel. I, you know, I like this plenty and their musicianship is very good. I'm not complaining about that. I just... Maybe it's just Dyer is pissing me off because of the praise he heaped on them. Another thing I guess I should say is I imagine that live, they're amazing. I'll bet watching them live is really, I bet this is cathartic stuff. When you see them do this sort of thing in a live setting and the way that they build, I'll bet that that's very powerful stuff. Yeah, you're taking the trip with them then, right? Exactly. You're, you're on the magic carpet with the group rather than exactly. and I bet hearing it after the fact. Yeah, I bet that feels really good. And I bet I bet live you are really pumped. And then, you know, I can I can get I get the hyperbole then. I don't think it translates, or at least so far on on the evidence of these two albums, it doesn't translate onto the disc for me. Certainly not in these long form numbers that we've listened to. So I like this a lot, but it feels much of a muchness with Silver Water. Weirdly, like I said, I think it has a little more rock content than Silver Water, just especially because of what the drummer is up to. But it's not noticeably more frenetic or loud. Like, this isn't out. This sort of segues between its movements and what you hear are kind of almost these sort of rock-like figures. It's So you get into a fugue state listening to it. It's just sort of this droning groove that keeps going on and on and on. And it's pleasant. It's enjoyable. And like I said, I'll bet live, it's the shit. But on, on, on the disc, I'm less taken with it. I like it, but it turns into background music really fast for me. And I don't know if that's how you felt about it. Well, I, I think that the difficulty with my lizard brain is if i put it in the background i'm in danger of becoming highly annoyed because mm. it's a little bit like chinese water torture right it's that insistent uh is a very glacial movement from where you know the piano might be playing a single note over and over and over again for five minutes yes. ten minutes and if you're paying enough attention to it that you're watching this flower in super slow-mo unfold it can work and i think if you've listened to it enough times that your mind starts to hold the shape of the whole thing, so you're kind of the arc of it is a little bit internalized and you aren't waiting for an event that isn't going to happen for another 10 minutes, it becomes more palatable. But at the first listen, what will happen is I'll be somewhere on the flatlands, say minute 10 to minute 30, and the repetition will start to bore into me if I'm not, you know, in other words, if I'm, I'm just putting it in the background because it, my mind is telling me nothing's happening. You know, it, it's like the, the old, it's like Chinese water torture, right? The drop keeps falling in your forehead. The first couple drops don't hurt, but by drop a thousand, you're ready to go insane. After I've internalized the form better, I like it better. Yeah, this is a little bit more acoustic sounding. There's less of the keyboards. There's less guitar. But the form of it is very, I mean, in a way, it's its like the kind of solos Blakey wanted his sidemen to play, you know, where you kind of begin slow and simple, build to a climax, and then there's a, you know, kind of a, a quieting phase and you're done. It's, it's like a, a tr you know, a, a triangle a kind of leaning to its side a bit where the climax comes like three-fourths of the performance and then it trails off. It's like that, except instead of two choruses, it lasts 
55 minutes. You know, you begin quiet, you build, you build. There might be a couple of ebbs and flows, and then towards the end, things quiet down again, slow down. And that was similar to Silverwater, which is another 10 minutes longer. I, I, I think in a sense, it's like if you looked at a jazz trio and you look at Pink Floyd, they're somewhere on the continuum, probably closer to Pink Floyd, not necessarily in the level of musical skill, which as you say is high, but, you know, it's that kind of slow burn, right? You know, it's it's very steady going. Yeah. So, and again, I, I, I just have the feeling heard live, this makes you want to just explode. The build up and release of tension has to be just transcendent. Right. Live, on a good night, know. anyway. Yeah. yeah, on a good night, and you're in front of speakers, and you're just, you know, you're headbanging, and it's awesome. And to Dyer's credit, I mean, he, he talked a lot about seeing these guys live and watching them in the studio, you know, rehearse and stuff. So he has a sort of much more immediate purchase on them in a way that, than I do at this point. So maybe if I'd been granted that access, I too would be ready to proclaim them the next most important thing ever. But, you know, just on this limited encounter with them on these two discs that are similar in a lot of ways, I, I can affirm that I like them a great deal and I would be interested in hearing more of their stuff, but I, uh, I, I don't have that same sense of transcendent wonder that uh, some of their champions have for them thus far. Right. Well, and it's, it is, it's doing different work than I think of most jazz doing. And that doesn't right. mean it's less valuable work. I, I think in the right mood, I'd really, really, and I, I do enjoy this album. And I think coming to it after Silverwater, I was kind of more ready to be in their world. Yeah. But it is closer to the kind of work that Pink Floyd does for a listener than Bill Evans, you know, and that's, again, I, I enjoy both those. I probably enjoy Bill Evans a little more, but, but, you know, it, it is kind of a trance like state of watching these glacial changes and listening to the nuance and also being very tonally centered and confident. This is not music of a tonality. It's not music of a rhythmicness. You know, it, it's, in a sense, the format of it is pretty close to rock. It, it's not music of harmonic labyrinths or challenge or morphing. It's pretty straightforward in a sense. It's, 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 these guys will take an idea that is pretty simple and then, you know, how do they develop it in the moment? And, you know, I think gratifyingly often, I, you know, I enjoy it. I think they're good at it. I, I think it's very hard to do this. It'd be hard for many traditional combos to pull off the kind of really super slow burn tension they create right but it, it's its own thing it's not i i don't I, I think a lot of jazz for me there's a certain certain quicksilver wittiness to it a certain kind of dealing with rapidly changing circumstances reacting to them trying to find the art trying to find the shape in it and that's not what these guys are about you know i i, I reread that article by our friend mr dyer and noticed that he said one of his companions to this concert had taken a line of coke and that was exactly the wrong drug to take before yes. hearing. And I was thinking, yeah. yeah. And I had that a vision, yeah, my, my thought is if I made a video of this album, it would begin with a very tight shot of a lava lamp. Yes. And then achingly slowly would pull back till the end of the video, there's like 50 lava lamps. That, <laughs> that, that or it's the lava lamp on the piano, and you slowly have pulled back, and at the very end you can actually see all three musicians, you know? Right, like, yeah. It takes an hour for you to pull back. There you, you go. <laughs> Look, he's got... 
Yeah, that's that is the wrong drug. I'm not sure what the right drug is, but you know, maybe you know, ecstasy, a little MDMA, maybe that might be the drug. I think something that affects Shatner's bassoon, right? Something Something that hits Shatner's bassoon. Absolutely, you know, your sense of time. But one of the anecdotes in that story was that the bass player does not bring his own bass. He always takes the bass that is available at the gig. And once he got one that he said only played five good notes. And the comment was, well, that's four more than you often play on one of these gigs. So, <laughs> right. That's four, you know, more, four more than you need. <laughs> and there are, you know, uh, a couple performances. I remember uh, Etc. by Wayne Shorter, where the last song on that album, the bass player is basically playing the same riff through a seven or eight minute performance. And it's just absolutely fantastic and riveting. You know, there's nothing wrong with minimalism. It, it can be no. really effective. Which cut is it on uh, a kind of blue? Is it so what? It's just that bass riff endlessly and the power of that riff repeated. Oh, is it so what I'm thinking of? Or yeah, there you go. And it just... and that's all he plays. There's like it's, it's slight chord change, but he plays that for the whole fucking song, and it, the tension is intense. Right. If you are committed to it, if you're feeling it, if you're loving it. If you're delivering it with a kind of musicality and, and nuance and commitment, incredibly compelling stuff. And, and, you know, these guys do have that. I think that their records tend to sound great. When they do record the acoustic bass, you really get a sense of its texture. The stereo effects are amazing on it. You know, it's kind of a sound world, but it's I think of it as a trippy kind of, again, to keep going back to the same comparison world exactly like Pink Floyd, but more that mood space than most trio jazz. And, you know, I like, you know, I'm, I'm appreciating the next. Yeah. I, again, we can't blame them for this kind of gushing, you know, right. It's not their fault that <laughs> no, Jeff Dyer no. lost his mind when he listened to them. Well, and they kind of present themselves. You know, I also noticed the names of their albums, the art on their albums, the, they are kind of presenting these records as more like a rock event, Uh, evoking a mood, a certain sense of abstraction, a sense of being in this special, unique club than the typical jazz album. You know, the the, the one-word titles and the abstract art. But but again, it's not music you turn to to find out about these guys as quote-unquote traditional improvisers, blowers, you know, super technicians. It's it's this mood they create and nurture. And it is, you know, just like some of uh, Keith Jarrett's stuff, harmonically speaking, if you listen to a lot of jazz or a lot of classical, you're, you're not kind of gobstruck by the complexity. You're like, yeah, you know, if you're going to play on one chord, you did a great job of developing that. It's, it's not the fanciest thing on earth, but it, it's effective. If you're looking for a lot of harmonic sustenance, maybe maybe not the guys to go to. But I, again, nothing, I, I enjoy them. I, they're not going to be replacing all my other jazz trio albums, but I'm glad they're there. And you know, I, I learned that they do, you know, I did try to play this in, at home because they kind of bug my wife. You know, it's again, if you're waiting for that thing to develop and it doesn't develop and you're not used to being, you know, it's like slow music, like slow food. Right. You know. Yeah. Do you have 50 minutes to kind of wait for the climax? Did, did your wife put them into the Wubba Wubba or the Ruby Doobie school? I don't know. It's tantric jazz, right, man? You just wait and wait. Tantric wait. jazz. That's exactly right. Tantric there jazz. You go. That's, that's a good Good term for them. Uh, for those who don't know, Pat's wife claims that all jazz can be reduced to either of two schools. How does it go, Pat? Dooby dooby doo or wubba wubba wubba. Though she just makes an <laughs> exception for Anthony Braxton, which is blah 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 blah. <laughs> There's a weird ass shit. Yeah, we got a 
a uh, avant-garde alto player solo recital uh, came across the desk for review or just listening to, and I was playing that at work, and he's just playing this uh, Mandela-like pattern, you know, over and over again. And my coworker was talking to me; he was playing in the background. And she looked at me, she said, "He's just playing the same thing over and over again." I'm like, "Yeah, welcome to my world." <laughs> you know, it's, it's a yeah. So I guess if we're ready to move back in time, yes. speaking of Welcome to My World, yes. uh, it's a whole new world. It's good for you. So, um, and this is, I'm going to shit on some British writers again for a while. So, oh um, boy, look out guys. Sorry. But so uh, any long-term jazz fan will know that virtually an indispensable set of guides to the music, especially for the newbie, are the famous penguin guides to jazz i don't know what we're on now the 12th the 13th the 11th millionth edition but these things yeah the penguin guide to jazz has been done forever i think i have four editions but i'm i'm several behind at this point and whenever i see it used when i pick it up because their reviews are always worth conjuring with even if they are often problematic anyway um there are two british guys i think only one is left right who died cook or morton I, i i don't know they're One the of, best written yes. guides I'm aware of. They're, they are. So Richard Cook and Brian Morton, One of, we call them collectively the Penguins. And one of the Penguins, Simor. Simor. Uh, so one of the Penguins is an ex-Penguin at this point. And one of the secret agendas that Pat and I have for doing this podcast is that someday Penguin will listen to our tens of listeners' cries for ascendance. And they will call Pat and me and ask us to spend the rest of our lives be paid to listen to jazz 24-7 and write acerbic reviews. The Penguins, they have some uh, blind spots. And one of their blind spots is they're fucking Brits. And so everything by a British jazz player gets an extra half star, whether it deserves it or not. And they have an intense love affair with the abstract out school in Britain. Many of these are very fine players, by the way. And because of the Penguins, I've become acquainted with several of them, so I thank them for that. But we're talking about people like Barry Guy, Tony Oxley, and, of course, the player under question, Evan Parker. Evan Parker is uh, mostly a soprano sax player, but I think he has another handful of horns uh, to his credit. I guess he plays tenor as well, but I seem to think he, he plays other stuff. Anyway, as far as the Penguins are concerned, he can essentially do no wrong. <laughs> and they give virtually everything he's recorded four stars. And as I said uh, on other on earlier podcasts, I once upon a time used them as a guide. And if it was four stars in the Penguins and I saw it used, I bought it. So that's how I came across this little gem that we are now going to talk about: memory slash vision. And which Patrick, is uh, is it 2003? 2002. It's Two and ECM. Yeah, ECM. Yeah, uh, one of the ECM's more daring. Uh, releases. It's uh, Patrick should thank me. We'll see if he's if he's actually <laughs> grateful in a moment. 
but this is by his electric acoustic ensemble. So that means there's a whole bunch of people doing mean things to electric instruments. It's a long list. And there's a handful of people playing acoustic instruments as well. And this is recorded live, I believe. So it's not as rebarbatively thorny and difficult as some of Parker's soprano noodlings are. Um, Parker's on soprano can sometimes make Steve Lacey sound gentle. (laughs) Evan Parker can get up to some really shrill out stuff that is really challenging on the ears. Well, he's a circular breather, too, so he never stops. Just keeps going. So uh, I have some thoughts about this, but I want to hear what you think about it, especially because this is definitely not in your comfort zone, even though you like soprano. But I bet it's, I thought, as I listened to this again, I thought this Pat shouldn't complain about this as much as he might be apt to. No, I, I right. It, it, there are seven movements or parts. Yes. It's it's this group that he apparently assembled and said, okay, everybody gets to be Eno. You know, what? it's like, uh, so some of them are just in charge apparently of chopping and, and rearranging and altering the, the sounds produced by the instrumentalists on laptops. In yes. other words, I think four of them don't actually quote unquote play an instrument. They just play with the sounds produced by the other instruments and, and alter them. There are moments here that remind me of the great lost soundtrack to a doctor who episode. Yes. <laughs> you know, kind of electronic, woo, you know, stuff. It is music that I've found could go into the background. It's not yes. super atonal. In a sense, often one wishes for less heaven. Here, maybe a little more would have been yeah. nice. Yeah. There, there, there are long stretches where you get things like someone apparently playing the strings of a piano. Right, yes. And you're like, that's interesting. They're strumming could... it with something. I hope it's their fingers. Yes. But it could you know, be like... almost any... Yeah, who can say? body appendage or, you know, stray mammal that wandered into the studio. <laughs> right. Dead cat. Yeah, and you're kind of like, gosh, I, I could kind of use a little angular raw soprano here. <laughs> this, this would help. I wondered if you thought... So when you listen to this, right, it's divided into seven parts. There's no there's no obvious reason that this couldn't just be one long number, is there? No, I mean, there, there are moments where the textures change, or the density changes. And, and it is, it's it largely in that school, you know, when I think of the avant-garde, there's the bleeps and bloops. There's the just everything all at once, kitchen sink, blazing, over-the-top, super emotive, multiphonic blast out this is closer to the bleeps and bloops school uh, you know and i guess we got us props to england i mean they do have this tradition of people in the avant-garde it's an astringent wing and fearless absolutely fearless fearless not particularly in any way shape or form touching on the blues you know cecil no. taylor in his own way ornette coleman very clearly coltrane all of them have blues roots these guys don't there's a little more of a right. third stream but a, a better maybe a better analogy would be henry threadgill right henry threadgill will Oh, get yeah. up to angular, bizarre, weird things, and yet there's always a touchstone of melody or the blues in, in what he's doing. And funk, and yeah, just he's just in, in humor. I don't know. Yes. You know, Evan Parker, you know, a stand-up comedian. This is humorless. This this is not this is not <laughs> yeah. funny at all. There's no this is difficult music. 
maybe not intentionally funny. I don't know. <laughs> Once right. or twice is like <laughs> right, but it's not. This isn't the assault on the ears that his music sometimes is. No. So. No. It's 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 gentler than some of his stuff can be, but it's uncompromisingly difficult, and it doesn't pretend to do melody. So no. you know, this is the kind of thing. Many listeners, you'll drop the needle, as it were, anywhere, and say, "What the fuck." It challenges your patience that way. I don't challenge mine, and I've listened to this a few times. You sit there and you listen, you know, and you listen, and it's like, okay, that's a new, interesting electronic sound texture. Oh, wait, there's a different one now. Yeah, texture's the word, right? I mean, a yes. lot of this is about textures. As I said, some of it, it, because of that, because it's not super rhythmic, and because it's not really music of an instrumentalist or instrumentalist stepping forward and really kind of dominating the sound field with their creations. You know, the whole thing is kind of MP to MF, you know, it's not, it's not a real abrasive assault on you. A lot of it is very abstract, but again, you know, it could work as a weird ass soundtrack to a sci-fi film. Yeah. It sounds like a Tarkovsky soundtrack. This could be okay. the soundtrack to Stalker, you know? Okay. <laughs> just dudes walking across a blasted apocalyptic landscape in search of a special room in the middle of the apocalypse where your dreams come true. Oh, look, there's more soprano saxophone reeds. Wait, burn that room. Okay. Uh, I, I will say he finally uh, cuts loose, if you will, on part five, you know? Right, yeah. And then it's kind of, it almost comes as a relief for the first five minutes. <laughs> that, that track is 15, 13 minutes long. Uh, and he does the circular breathing, and he's playing this frenetic it's, – it's not loud, but he's playing this frenetic figure uh, frantically over and over and over again. And, and it's obviously circular breathing because you can't hear him take a breath. And, and then after about five minutes, I'm like, okay, I'm ready for the – I'm, I'm ready for the synthesized noise again. Bring uh, on the drones. That was bring nice. on the drones. I mean, <laughs> it is interesting at first though, because after all of that other what some people would call noise, he finally plays, and you're like, oh, there he is. It's birds, yeah. almost, you know. Atmospheric, uh, minimalistic, not minimalism though. He's right. got his playing. He's got some connections. Yeah. It's doing different work in a, in a not the same work as the next, but in a sense that I think of, it's just not necessarily doing the kind of aesthetic lifting that I'm I find in jazz. That doesn't mean it's less valuable. It's just it's more creating these various moods. It's very abstract. It's not in a sense an instrumentalist focused music the way so much jazz is. It's more 
this ambient altering of these sounds. And again, that kind of tight, limited expressive range. My thesis may be this is the fucking coolest set of music we've ever looked at. Just mm. as a whole, the, the temperature yeah. of these selections is, is the most frigid. We'll have to think about that by the end. But, but in very different ways, these are some cool customers now. Michelle Petrucciani is obviously a great exception there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's an interesting point because Evan Parker, of course, has has done some music with Anthony Braxton. And when the two of them play together, uh, Parker is, uh, Braxton is, uh, whatever else you want to say about him, uh, and one can say a great deal, he is an emotional, there's emotion in his playing, even though he has this image of the bespectacled, sweater-clad professor. There's heat and passion in what he does, even if there's also mathematical precision. And on, I've got a handful, two or three, maybe four discs with Parker and Braxton playing together. I think he, I think, I don't know if it's Braxton calling us out of Parker or Parker just meeting Braxton where he lives, but Parker seems notably more engaged and fiery. Right, yeah. Not, not less difficult and not less uncompromising, but more, not as cool. Not as cool. So that's a good point about the cool. I think you're right about the coolness. I think that's a good yeah, it's point. It's kind of like the Kid A of jazz or something. You know, it really mm. pushing that kind of just, yeah, very uh, somewhat alienated, alien, abstract, not scary, not super abrasive, not freak me out. You know, this is not nipples or right. or, or Eiler, you know. Um, it's just kind of weird-ass background soundtrack stuff. And, you know, I, I, it works okay for me. It's, it's not unpleasant. I just don't know that it has the nutrients in it that I'm looking for most of the time. Right. And you know what? I might as well, just to, to add to your cool point here, um, it's worth uh, quoting the, uh, the Penguins here on this album just briefly. Uh, here's what they say. This record, Memory Vision, is inspired by and dedicated to the late Charles Arthur Muses. So pay attention, kids at home. Muses died in 2000. He was the founder of chronotopology. Oh, Lord. And an influential thinker in the admittedly arcane field of hypernumber arithmetics and imaginary vector analysis and virtual dimensions. These ideas and processes obviously recommend him strongly to a musician of Parker's briskly scientistic approach. What one actually hears on Memory Vision which was commissioned, commissioned. This is a commissioned recording. Okay. I hope they got their money back. For the Huddersfield, yeah, for the Huddersfield Contemporary Music Festival is, quote, a dramatic utopics, a real-time analysis of sound odors that goes as far beyond Whitehead's process as Whitehead goes beyond tuna-day diatonics. <laughs> so, kids listening at home, <laughs> whether you like this shit or not, it comes with big brain box justifications. I mean, good for Parker. Okay, fine. He got interested in Charles Arthur Muses and chronotopology, and he wants to he wants to saturate his music with hypernumber arithmetics and imaginary vector analysis. That's great. <laughs> vector analysis. Good, good for him. You know, the analysis is but always I'm the same. Gonna... It's a fucking imaginary vector. They made it up. Moving on. <laughs> right, but I'm gonna guess that a lot of the kids are gonna listen to this and go, "Okay, this sounds like my refrigerator malfunctioning." Next. Well, and this is for a, definitely a, a small audience. Like I said, this is not something that ends up in the rotation a lot. <laughs> it's not like foot tapping music, but when it does end up in the rotation, I do listen to it and, and pay attention. But uh, yeah, it's challenging stuff. <laughs> Doctor Who ready. 
Yeah, I, I've yes. got a, my son is a physics major, so I hear some of the shit at the dinner table because you know Joyce Joyce knows some fairly complicated math, and I'm just like, I'm just gonna sit here reading my book because this is way over my head. <laughs> so is some of this music. Well, what's so we're going back in time. Too sweet. Too sweet. Yes. That's Happy Place, finally. Yeah. This is on the Owl label, which I believe is responsible for a whole bunch of Michelle Petrucciani's music, actually. And I seem to recall he records for that label a lot. But Konitz is the official leader on uh, on this particular date. And Lee is, of course, a player of uh, alto soprano and tenor saxophone. What does he just play here? Alto. Yeah, that's his main axe, for sure. It's made axe. And he has the florid, effervescent Michelle Petrucciani playing with him here. And as I mentioned to Pat when we were setting this up, Konitz does a lot of these dates with piano players. He, of course, records in plenty of other settings, but his discography has, I think, I suspect, a higher proportion of dates where he plays with a, with someone on piano, just duo dates with piano. And this seems to be a format that he digs a lot. So what did you make of this date with Michel Petrucciani? Yeah, well, I've been listening to, uh, I got a, a box of Michelle's releases on Blue Note, and mm. there's some real gems there and a couple of misfires. This is very early in his career, right? He's like 19 or something. Yeah. And, you know, he originally comes out of Bill Evans and then gets a little bit more distinctive. He's, he's probably a little bit more driving, a little bit more hard-on-sleeve romantic. And just a really fun player who suffered from this rare bone disease. So he was only like four foot tall or something. And he died very young. And also a famous hard and fast liver. And I think that maybe he was the one that coaxed Charles Lloyd out of retirement. I'm not oh, really? sure about that, but he definitely played with him. He might have been the one to convince Lloyd to keep start playing again. And then since then, Lloyd has been a prolific. Yeah, well, citizen. he won't stop. He really puts product out. Yeah. I seem to remember reading somewhere about Petrucciani and his wild private life. Oh, okay. Um, uh, could be. Lots and lots of lots and lots of sex and a fair amount of drugs. Good for him. I mean, good for him. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm jealous. Yeah, here I am eating my vegetarian, well, it's not really vegetarian, but my zucchini lasagna and eating my seven M&Ms. It's a wild <laughs> lifestyle. It's like a hundred hearts or a thousand hearts, a really good album. So anyway, here he's paired with Lee Konitz, who's just now 117 years old and goes and goes right. and goes. And, you know, what struck me here is some of these performances go on 15 minutes or more. They're very yes. extended. And, and Lee, I guess it struck me here, and I'm sure this is, you know, it's been said a thousand times before, but he's really a horizontal improviser, not in the sense necessarily of, of rhythmic thrust or whatever, but just in the sense that his improvisations don't follow that pattern that we talked about earlier about the Blakey, you know, you want to build to a climax and then slowly back down, you know, where it's, there's a very specific arc. His tend to be kind of muses, you know, that he's musing about things. They're discursive. They just go on. There's no sense that if you're in the 15th chorus, it's all that different in intensity from the second chorus. Right. They're interesting. I like them, but they just, they're discursive. They go on and on. And then after a while, you know, he might stop and 
Michelle might play a while solo, but then he'll start creeping back in. He's he's somebody who tries very hard not to play licks. He doesn't try to play cliches. He wants to be fresh. And, you know, his tendency to dwell on a standard and just really kind of explore it at great length goes back. I found this album I never digitized before, a little bit noisy copy of Lonely. Oh, yeah. Which is, you know, just him playing on each side of the LP one standard. One is Cherokee, and I can't remember the other the other standard he does, but it's just him. Uh, the song is there you. you. Okay, the song, is, the you. song is you. And it's like, you know, 15, 20 minutes of him just playing by himself this standard. And and again, it does not, there is no moment of great Sturm und Drang where he reaches a climax. And, it you know, it's just kind of him thinking about the standard melodically and harmonically for 15, 17 minutes. So, there's some things he does fantastically well. He's always he's sort of in that cool school, but he's not he's not as pure sounding as Art Pepper as a young man or Paul Desmond throughout his career. There's a little bit more of a slight hoarseness and breath to his sound, especially later on. Well, this is also recorded in like a concert hall, right. and so it's very echoey. It is. It's very you know, and that increases the hoarseness right. of his tone. Which I think is good. Uh, at you times, know, I mean, it's a good sounding record. Yeah, it, it's very pleasing. It's just there are some things that he does fantastically well, but if you're looking for a kind of a thrust or a sense of building, a sense of destination or destiny, you're not going to get it here because it is. He's more of a rambling, musing kind of guy. So, I mean, I liked it overall. It's not one I happen to have. I've got, as I said, I kind of got deeper into Michelle's music a few years ago when I, I tracked down a used copy of that, like, seven-CD set of his stuff on Blue Note. And I think Blue Note kind of readopted a couple of other you know, albums that he'd done on other labels and made them theirs or something. There's some really strong music on that. And he's just kind of a figure from our youth. You know, he was coming up. This is, like, 82. And yeah. that was just the start of his career. So kind of his big moment was the 80s early 90s before he passed away so he was kind of a figure that if you were starting to get into jazz you know as a young person at that time you'd run across i think the chemistry is pretty good what did you think of it i I liked it so for example the longest cut here is round midnight which is 16 minutes long and when when you see that you think oh boy here we go old guy I guess, how old is he at this point? He's almost 60, so he's not that old. Right, um, but still, just, yeah, he's right. a veteran. <laughs> exactly. When you see Round About Midnight at 16 minutes, you're like, oh boy, here we go, right? Well, they take this shit at a pretty good clip. And when it opens, you're like, whoa, that's brisk. What the hell are they going to do for 16 minutes? And what they do is he plays hide-and-seek with the melody. Yeah. Um, he gets to it, and then he kind of runs away from it. And, and occasionally Petrucciani will call him back with a couple of signal chords and, and he'll go off loping, rambling on some other exploration. It's like they keep toying with the melody and playing with the melody, but they never, they don't quite resolve it until pretty late. And, 
And as a result, it's a kind of interesting meditation almost on the song rather than a performance of the song. It reminds me of, there's a Brubeck recording, I forget on what album it is, it's an early Brubeck where they play, it's a song that Brubeck wrote called Under the Rainbow, I think, Mm. and it's meant to be Over the Rainbow, the Wizard of Oz song. And throughout the song, it's it's with the Des- it's Desmond in the quartet at that time, and they play Peekaboo with Over the Rainbow throughout the whole song, and that's what this feels like all the way through. He will he will play licks from the melody, and so will Petrucciani, but they're more like it's more like they're coming back, looping to it, reminding us of it, and then off they go again. And it's a very responsive recording between the two of them. Uh, you have the sense that. They're listening to each other well and calling to each other across the melody. Yeah, uh, it's 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 a pretty dynamic set, and maybe because it's early in Petrucciani's career, he's he's more responsive than perhaps he might be inclined to be later when he becomes more of a driven wild man of his own making. Uh, here, he he really does seem to have a good ear for what Konitz is doing. I liked it. I liked it a lot better. I mean, I've heard it before, but I liked it a lot better than I guess I remember. Uh, especially because the, those two longest cuts, the other really long cut here is Lover Man. They take that melody and they they don't just play verse, chorus, you know. He he touches on it and then off they go. And he's he's doing those weird explorations right. that he does. But it's not like, you know, Brad Meldow where he kind of takes a melody and just dissects it. Yeah. This is much more genial and loping. And relaxed. Well, and Round Midnight has a huge gravity. It is a brilliant song that is easy to turn into kind of a sentimental mush because it's just so pleasing to play. You know, it's yeah, and so it really benefits. And to some degree, so does Lover Man, which is you know kind of an overwrought, just an oven begging for he. I mean, the lyrics are a little bit <laughs> disturbing in the Me Too era, I would yes. say. So in both cases, the, the cool musings of Konitz really actually enhance the song. Certain songs that were, you know, that had a more abstract bent to them already might suffer under it. But here he's cooling down what can become overly ripely romantic in the wrong hands tunes. And so that tension works beautifully because he is, you know, ultimately he is a very different kind of player i'm not sure he wants to be called cool but he's right. cool in a way i mean he is not uh, some guy playing a bunch of blues cries or a bunch of you know well-known licks somebody who's trying to build up to some sloppy climax he's just that's not lee's way uh, so right. those are great tunes to to take out for a long yeah, time they, yeah they rely on the listener's knowledge of the melody right so that he doesn't have to play it he can just allude to it and you know it and then he can he can just sort of I used to, uh, I, my aunt had a, this amazing part pit bull part, I forget what the hell she was, and I would take her for walks, and whenever I took her for a walk, I had this path in the, in the mountains I would take, it was about a three-mile path, and Sierra, that was the name, this dog's name, she would run about 15 miles to my three, <laughs> and I, w- I would take her off leash, and she would literally just periodically cross the path, check to see where I was, then go off into the brush chasing shit. And I would see her every quarter of a, to a half mile. She would pop out in front of me or behind me just to see where I was. And then off she would go again. And that's Konitz with the melody. Yeah. It's, like, it's like, is it here? Yeah, okay. Here's, here's a few notes. And we're off again. You know, a grand old he just touches on it. Yeah, and he's, he's clearly enjoying himself. And I, 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 think, this is, I think this is a good date for, for these two guys. At least 
I don't know if Petrucciani is happy, but I think Conitz is very much in his element here, very pleased with this collaboration. And, you know, it, I, I made some Burini the other night, the uh, Indian rice dish, and that particular batch, the golden raisins in it, made every bite better because they were that sweet burst that kind of blended with and offset the other flavors. And that's Petrucciani in this date. I mean, he is a, a warm player who nicely counterbalances Lee. Meldow, and he has recorded with Meldow, a yes. couple. And those sometimes maybe get a little bit abstract. You know, there, there's this, you almost need a, a, an earthier, more accessible uh, personality to pair with Conant's. And Petrucciani fits the bill beautifully, where Meldau is in his own kind of abstract Teutonic zone. It's like two, it's like two giant planets with their own gravitational right, pull. Exactly. You know? you know, I want to go over here and explore these things. Well, I'm, you know, it, it, this is a neat fit, and it's just a, it's a very pleasant album. But I, I did notice that, in a sense, it works if if you were waiting for the climax as kind of the next make you do with Konitz, you'd just be so frustrated that, that you go crazy. He's just, he doesn't, that's just not the way he works. It It, it is more uh, perambulation. And that's got its own thing. I mean, again, not something I could listen to 24 seven, but, uh, and this is a good, I think example of him. And there's certain albums I love to death by Lee and other ones that kind of leave me cold. He did a, a, a duet albums with, with Jill Evans that I've just never been that excited by. Whereas like, Lee Konitz, Inside Hi-Fi, one of the stupidest covers from the 50s, I think is, is a great album. You know, he's a moment-by-moment moment kind of player. But this is a neat one. Emotion is another one where he's teamed with a very hot player being Elvin Jones on drums. And there's that tension between his style and Elvin's that sells that record really well. Anyway, cool one. So we're now back to the elephant in the room. Modern Jazz Quartet. Modern Jazz Quartet, the, the group that, I don't know, is probably one of a handful of jazz organizations that really entered the popular consciousness, really had a, a career that, I don't know, Mr. and Mrs. Middle Class America back in the 70s might have had a record or two by them. And they are the Rolling Stones, or were the Rolling Stones, of the jazz world. I mean, what, 40 years? Right. With breaks, with breaks, but yeah. Right, but still, I mean, yeah, they all, all four guys had their own thing. But uh, yeah, this is a long-lived group with almost, almost perfectly stable personnel all the way through. The drummer swaps out at one point. but Really yeah, early on, right? I mean, it's Connie Kay for decades, yeah. but I cannot remember. It was yes. some Kenny Clark. Thank you. You know, somebody who, because there are moments, you know, I got years ago the mosaic set of the Modern Jazz Quartet's Atlantic albums, and that's really the, the part of the career they're best known for. And this set you've got kind of bookends it. It's the very beginning yeah. in Prestige, the very end on Pablo. And there are moments on those albums where I feel like Connie Kay is like some kind of prisoner in this cult, and they're making him play the same figure on Triangle for four minutes. And he's yeah. just trying to say in Morse code, help me. Help me, Let me out. get me out, because <laughs> it is it's some of the most dispiriting percussive displays I've heard in jazz. And 
there's some very successful and, and lovable uh, music they make in that period, but you're not a rhythmic powerhouse group. No, this is, you know, so for them, what don't know, I, I guess initially the MJQ was uh, John Lewis is essentially the leader, composes a lot of their stuff on piano. And the big star is, of course, Bags, Milt Jackson on vibraphone. And I think when they first started, they actually had Ray Brown on bass initially with Kenny Clark. Mm. But they go away. Yeah. And then it's it's Percy Heath, whom I adore on bass and Connie Kay uh, on drums for, uh, you know, 40 years, four guys, 40 years. They have other stuff, but Lewis has his own projects. He's, he's got his fingers in a lot of pies. And Milt Jackson, when he's away from MJQ, is like he's the go-to bop vibraphonist for a lot of players. He, he, he's like the king of the three-star recording, I think. Yeah, and they're kind of like <laughs> the African-American Brubeck Quartet, right? The, yeah. Third stream yeah. stuff. Third stream, you know, classical. Inf- Lewis brings the classical influence oh, yeah. in his compositions. He's very interested in that kind of thing. And that alchemy between Lewis's classicism and Milt Jackson's bebop and blues feeling, is, yeah. is really, yeah, that's really the kind of engine for, for this band. So that's, that's them. And I, they are, I think the word, the adjective that best describes them is tasteful. Yeah. They are tasteful. They're decorous. <laughs> they're always like they're, you can you can't imagine them not playing in tuxedos. <laughs> That's right. They go to sleep in them. These are not men who in the seventies suddenly donned daishikis. They, these these are guys in tuxedos. They showered in them. They slept. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so right. I'm gonna guess you liked parts of this a whole bunch. Well, there are moments and there are some fine. You know, there's like one where they they meet with a classical uh, Spanish guitarist. Yeah. They collaborate a couple times with Sonny Rollins and four tracks they did with yes. him. You know, as a kid, I had like some ancient prestige twofer of Rollins material that included this session on one of the four sides of the LPs. I don't right. know if I even still own it, but but I remember these tracks at their best. They can be very entertaining in a way. They're more uptight. It's, it's hard to imagine. But and of course, in the Brubeck Quartet, the classic lineup has a very ambitious and interventionist drummer in Joe Morello and here yeah. that is not the case whereas Brubeck is sometimes a painfully maximalist player Lewis is always a very minimalist restrained yep. almost hesitant sounding Very simple, very clear-limbed player on piano. Yep. Some of their music I like. Some of it I do not warm to. I just find it it so easily slips into background music. And they they insist on Milt Jackson's vibraphone and that sort of medium sustain. Right. And everything starts to sound the same after a while. It's always good, but rarely does it jump out at you, which is why I love the cuts with Sonny oh, Rollins. Yeah. Well, they don't have a, you don't have an instrument that, that can bend pitches, right? You, you, it's right, too, right. you know, very, and I, I love vibraphone music. I, I, you know, yes. I mean, I love Bobby Hutcherson 
more than I love Milt Jackson. I love them both. But and you know Milt Jackson, he does a series of records with Lucky Thompson that I just fucking adore. They are very yeah. obscure. I, it's a damn shame. There's like a box of his stuff I ran across at a budget price, and it had maybe a disc and maybe a half of that stuff. And I'm like, God, I just want ten albums of this. It's so great. But 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 Lucky's got some breathy romanticism in his soul, and yeah. There you've got that yin and the yang you need. It's it's not that Milt has no blues feeling, but but the vibraphone is an instrument that is on the chilly end of the spectrum for the most part. And of course, Lewis is one of the chilliest fucking piano players who ever strode the earth in the in the jazz tradition. He just yeah. funk in his butt is at zero point zero 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 percent. Yeah, he's one of the guys on Birth of the Cool. You know, yeah. I mean that tells you what you need to know right there. Now, at the very end of his life, Lewis releases a solo album that I think is justly held in pretty high regard, where you just get the sense of his the purity of his thought and the distillation of his kind of classicism after he might have been 80 when he made it, or at least in the 70s. And there is a kind of just statement quality about it that is impressive. But, you know, on the day-to-day grind of the MJQ, where they make album after album after album, some of it's not super inspired. I mean, this is real early. The, the first few tracks, you can kind of hear them emerging out of the bebop cocoon. Uh, yeah. And, and, and of course, with Sonny there, you know, of course, it's just the warmth level and, and, and the humor level and just the sheer, you know, I mean, Sonny's just a motherfucking monster. And, and this is him just starting to get to the absolute grand period, you know, right before Colossus in those sessions, you know, where he's just yeah. becoming, you know, one of the great motherfuckers of all time. And you can you can absolutely hear Milt Jackson. You can literally hear him up his yeah, game. He's, yeah, he's like thawing out. He's getting a little bit more limber. He's like, okay, because you know, no one would say that Lewis is is a great improviser. No, no. But when you on the stopper is great. That's an up tempo Rollins number, and it's like someone lit a fire under Milt Jackson's ass, and he is awesome on the second half of that cut. And then Lewis comes in for his solo at the end, and it's you know it's fine, it's competent, it's good. But you know, it's like Milt Jackson suddenly like caught fire, you know, and then this old video games, you know, where um, they, you, you, when you play five on five basketball and if your video player makes three or four shots, you'd hear the fire. sound of the announcer say, he's on fire. That's what happens to Mel Jackson halfway through the stopper. It's like, he's on fire. Yeah. <laughs> you just, you're like, who's this guy? Where was he in the first half of this disc? It's an, he's another player altogether. Yeah. It's very noticeable. Yeah, and the other thing is, this is a lot of music. It's like 75 minutes. As you said, it's 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 probably three 50s-era LPs crammed together. So, yeah, it's the beginning. I think that I would say that you want the the handful of their best stuff on Atlantic first. Yeah. Including a session that I think it's like, I can't, God, it's something in with, with Rollins. But as I said, there's one with a Spanish guitar player that is really quite good. Is that Contessa? No, no, I, and I can't for some reason pull up my, my correct music library right now to look at it. That's but, right. uh, I'm just curious. Lonely Woman is a good session. And, you know, most of them have something of value. Yeah. It, it's not, I would not recommend putting four or five 
in a row in a stack. Because, yeah, as you say, there is that sense no, no. of just kind of a narrowness of, of sound that, that ultimately, no matter how great the conception and the playing is, can kind of grate on your ear after a while. And as I said, there are times that, that it's just like, okay, did Connie K kill your dog, John Lewis? What did he do to make him do some of this percussion stuff? I mean, it is there's just a dispirited kind of mechanical way that some of the parts he's forced to play come across that just kind of are soul sapping. That's not, you know, obviously by no means the majority of the the pieces are like that, but yeah, this was a crossover group that found a huge audience has. And I think the thing is even compared to Brubeck, this is music that if you're looking for music for use, you can always put in the background and always is quote unquote soothing to kind of a general listener. So there is a, an appeal yeah. to it that that is kind of undeniable. And clearly they found commercial lightning in a bottle and that they rode that for a long time. Yeah. And then they came back. They were not interested in tampering with the formula for the most part. They stuck with what worked. Right. And I'm sure Milt, you know, Milt does some stuff on CTI in the seventies. It's kind of, you know, that kind of velour jacket groove that, that I find yeah. appealing at times. So it's not, you know, he, yeah. he, is in various sessions during these this long stretch of the MJQ. Yeah, he's he's the he's the side guy who gets called in. He gets a lot of duo dates. He gets a bunch of dates with. He gets the headline with people a lot. And nobody's like, I want to play with Connie K. It's like no, right? No. You know, it's kind of it's two. I have two other interesting or two other thoughts. Not necessarily interesting. One is, you know, it's hard to believe that the origin of this group is as Dizzy Gillespie's rhythm section. Yeah, you never think that, would you? <laughs> no, you're like. So these are the guys who buy Dizzy? You know, that's just not, that's always a surprising thought to me. And then the other thought has to do with Percy Heath's only leader date. If you don't have it, go get it. Um, it was on a label called Daddy Jazz. Ah, Daddy Jazz. <laughs> and it's called, it's called A Love Song. And it is fucking glorious. It's just a great album, uh, a great bass player-led album. It's really, really good. And it shows that even if you can't hear him as much as you'd like to on the MJQ albums, Percy Heath was good. He was really good. Right. I, I think that I don't know that this group, and it's true of Brubeck too, you know, that these groups that were kind of big popular hits at the time have necessarily found a place in the jazz can in the way more challenging musicians like a John Coltrane or a Miles Davis or whatever have. There's almost a little embarrassment in jazz quarters about their success and the fact that they were kind of appealing to the mainstream. And there are times I listen to this and think, yeah, some of this is, you know, we're getting, we're not in the elevator, but we're kind of heading down the hallway towards it. But there's, there's value there. I think it's good jazz content. It's just that some of it goes wrong and you don't want to listen to like three discs of it in a row unless you're just. Really, at times, it's perfect. It has been, for, you know, as I've complained the last couple of months, really busy at work and somewhat tense. I mean, not not an interpersonal problem, just the problems we're facing in terms of our work have been kind of stressful. And this is the kind of music that kind of calms you down as you're writing yet another 10-page document about X, Y, or Z. So it, it's it's good that way. But yeah, I, yeah. I wouldn't turn here first. Yeah, I would say uh, for, for anyone who's interested in MJQ, you almost can't go wrong randomly picking. There aren't a lot of dogs in the discography, are there? I mean, this is just a three-star outfit from beginning to end, pretty much. So in sampling, I don't think there's a major, I don't think there's like an arc development. So Not particularly. You're kind of safe for going for the Atlantics. 
Right. But if you went for one of the early prestiges or one of the Pablos, you're, these are much of a muchness. They're all solid. You're not gonna, you're not gonna listen to them and go, oh, that was shit. Like, they don't make shit recordings. They're all tasteful. Music Inn, so they, they have a couple gigs at Music Inn, ones with right, right, right. Uh, Sonny Rollins, that's good. Pyramid's pretty solid. That was one I think, I as a kid, seemed to be the one that would linger in the record bins year after year. I think the only one that the Penguins gave a coronet to back in the day was the two-disc two live, I think it's live, album called Dedicated to Connie. Which, yeah. That was John Lewis's apology for 20 years of triangle playing. There you go, torture the four fucker. Well, I had, as I said, I'd, I'd, I'd recommend Lonely Woman and then Collaboration. And I'd say you can't go wrong with almost anything. But right, but but I'd say those for me, having listened to that set that, that uh, Mosaic put out, in some depth, those are probably the standouts. But if you really want to go hardcore, it's when they meet the Swingle Singers. Then you know. <laughs> Everything's good. You're an ass. <laughs> I am an ass. All right. Well, are, are we ready for pop? Right, do you have? Oh pop? shit. Uh, you probably do. Go ahead. I'll, I'll look and see what I've been listening to. It's been busy around here. You, you go ahead and talk. So the main thing I, I talk about is The Harrow and the Harvest by Jillian Welch. Oh, yes. I like some Jillian Welch. I like her. Yeah, I, I got that on vinyl, and it sounds great. It, that's a, a, I ha- is that the live one? That's the parts no, of your no, live? No, it's her and her paramour, whoever. I think I have that. Go ahead, keep talking. Sorry. Well, I will send you the dub. It, it's an amazing – the first side of it is just – amazing very dark kind of personal a little off center it's not quite traditional folk the sound of it is beautiful you know it's a few acoustic instruments it's the two of them harmonizing sometimes just with aching beauty you know that sense where they're finding the notes and just nailing them but it's effort and love getting them to the harmony rather than just being born incredibly gifted singers right there's just enough work that it really touches you so that first side I love it. And then the second side is just somehow more traditionally folksy, a little bit more like emotionally speaking, you kind of took 40 steps back and it's just a little bit more like the music you might see at a recreated like Connor Prairie here in Indiana, where, you know, people pretend to be pioneer days. Yeah, yeah. It's good. There's still wit. I still like it. But it's like A plus plus side A and then side B is like a really solid B plus. It's good, but it's not, you know, because I'm not a natural folky. I'm not somebody who's deeply into the genre. Uh, I really, if I'd been in charge of that record, would have flipped the sides. Because, you know, then it'd be like, holy shit, you know, this. Because the way things end really influence our understanding of their quality. And I would have, I'd make side A, side B, et cetera. But uh, the, the, the pressing, which is not super heavy vinyl, it sounds gorgeous. And I recommend it. So yeah, her partner is uh, David Rawlings, and I, I have Hell Among the Yearlings, 
And then I have a live dub someone did for me. I think it's a bootleg, actually, of ah. Jillian and David together. And it's the shit. They're really fucking good live. Yeah, she's got a new one coming out. Yeah, I can imagine. It's they're on top the of the game. Yeah, they, right. they, 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 it's, they're not a studio thing. They're really good live. So I have this bootleg that I think is fantastic of the two of them. But yeah, they're, they're harmonizing is just, it's great. The songwriting is it's all their originals in this old folk style. Right. And there is some very great dark wit. It's a really good record. It's just that, as I said, side one is just so incredibly good that side two suffers a little bit in comparison. Okay. I still like Fold Your Hands, Child, You Walk Like a Peasant by Bell and Sebastian. I'm re-listening to that. I, I think I've decided a secret weapon. There's strong melodies. I know some people felt like they were kind of spinning their wheels at that time, and they, that was the last record in their classic style they did. Man, the orchestrations with the strings, I just I love them so much. But, again, that has to do with the fact my son learned to walk when that album came out and blah, blah, blah. But I, okay. I just like it. The last thing I was going to mention was we, I was out on a walk with my son and my wife. We went down to the park. We got an ice cream cone. We came back. And two houses south of us, the neighbors kind of stopped us and say, do you live around here? And you say, well, we live to Tuesday. Is that where the saxophone comes from? And I said, yeah, that's, that's me playing the saxophone. And, you know, this, this woman said a very nice thing. And it was like that when she heard it, she really liked it. It made her feel old timey. Ah, that's always a good feeling. <laughs> you know, I'm not trying to be, it was just because my, my neighbor to the north said, it just reminds me of Bill Clinton. I'm like, well, thank you. Right. <laughs> you know, but but I think it's, it's you know, like I said, it was harder for him because he always had an intern on his knee when he's playing, so it's a little tricky. <laughs> fingering was always very, anyway, uh, he knew a lot of alternate fingerings, but it just, it, it was a great reminder. And, it, you know, nothing against this woman. It was very nice to hear that at least it didn't, like, drive her up a fucking tree because I, I always worry, you know, there are people just, like, gritting their teeth when I'm doing this. But for so many people, the sound of a saxophone is not a communicative voice that you're used to hearing every day. It is this weird alien thing from another time and place that is just, like, basically a, a memory chunk of, like, me seeing... Uh, Herbie Hancock with a guitar, right? It's just this weird thing you thought didn't exist anymore, and it reminds you of something old-timey, whether it's Bill Clinton or whatever it was that was in this woman's mind. So it was just kind of a neat reminder that, or maybe not neat, it was a good reminder that for so many people, jazz is so incredibly alien and far away culturally from their life experience that it, it doesn't really have a, anything more specific than kind of a, a feeling attached to it. But Fine, you know. At least the feeling was that I sucked, which is probably the right feeling that a jazz aficionado would get. So, anyway, <laughs> that's kind right. of cool. Yeah. Cool. So, yeah, I have been listening to something, which is listening to, I, I got a hold of Warner's two-disc Prince release, uh. which apparently, as part of Prince's it's in his will of something, uh, Warner. Of will, I think it is a problem. 
Well, Warner's has the right to release shit up until I think 2022 or something. There's an end date at which they can stop. Re- they can't repackage him any further. And all the re- he's he had some deal where all of the rights revert, reverted back to his estate. And there's, of course, the metric fuck ton of music he never released that is still in a vault somewhere. Anyway, so this is a two disc Warner repackaging of like the hits and it includes stuff from the early years, uh, dirty mind and controversy. And as, as a two disc selection of Prince's stuff, this is probably as, as good as it's going to get. Just uh, there's a live recording of nothing compares to you. There's a really good five and a half minute version of sexy motherfucker. <laughs> this is, this is, this is the Prince that, you know, at least until the vaults open and we get to hear the unreleased uh, cuts on things and the, uh, and the other, the alternate versions of some of his hits, this is probably the best you're going to get, you know, as far as just an overview compilation. It's like 40 songs. It's like almost three hours of music, but he's, my God, he's, he's fucking amazing. He's really good. And I complain about some of the cuts. They did the radio edits for some of the cuts uh, instead of the original LP cuts. So contra- right. the title kind of controversy is seven minutes of Prince having an orgasm. And they use the radio edit here, which is only three minutes of Prince getting ready to have an orgasm. He's barely unzipped his pants. And then the song is over. God. That's, un- that's unfortunate, but I-, I could listen to sexy motherfucker all day long, basically. I just love that shit. So yeah, my memory is like being in a in a high school math class where a girl who wasn't good at math was talking to a friend of hers about how great Dirty Mind was. It is that kind of dates. It's you know he's been around. I, I guess yeah, I admire him. I like a couple songs, but he's never touched me as, as an artist. It's just I ended up. I yeah. yeah, I ended up going back later to so the first. Like everyone our age, I sort of became aware of him around the time of 1999 and Purple Rain. And then, of course, you, you could not be aware of him thereafter. So I ended up going back to Dirty Mind from 1980 and Controversy from 1981. Jesus Christ. He's doing, he's fucking, he's like three or four pop stars rolled into one. Like, he's Madonna before Madonna. Yeah. And he's he's James Brown. He's, he's prettier. James Brown's, he's prettier. He is prettier. He's also shorter. He's he's James Brown. He's, uh, what's the name of that crazy motherfucker? His last name's is James, the, the crazy guy. Rick James. Rick, Rick James. James. I'm like, Rick James, like, bitch. Yep. Yeah, he's like Rick James and James Brown and Madonna rolled into one. You know, like this one dynamite package of, and like three or four other things as well, like Jimi Hendrix. He's he's all of them in one body. And if you listen to the, the pre, the stuff before he went supernova, right? Prince, Dirty Mind, Controversy. That shit is seriously fucked up funk. It is awesome. I mean, it's just really, really raw. And yeah, really, I might like that better. I yeah, it's uh, a little bit like Janelle Monae, where you're like incredible talent, incredibly attractive human being, but. You just don't know quite what the inner motor for what they're doing is. It doesn't. I, I feel like there's emotionally speaking this thick plexiglass between me and the performance. I'm always amazed and impressed by it, but just yeah. it's not like I hear it. I'm like this is fantastic, but then if I never hear it again, it doesn't. I don't miss it. Anyway, I just I, I've always been struck by that because of course you know I did look up him doing the solo on while my guitar gently weeps on YouTube. You know, Deathless. You know, just it's just awesome to see that Prince is kind of the rock star, but but I just his own stuff. You know, I've had 1999 for years or whatever. I just I like it. I enjoy it. I certainly admire it. But then I don't 
feel the urge to put it back on. Yeah, no, I, I, so like I said, I like that stuff and I listen, I, I don't actually own anything. I think after Purple Rain, although I've heard, you know, Sign of the Times and Love Sexy and Graffiti Bridge and Diamonds and Pearls, I've heard all of those. But uh, yeah, it was when I went back and acquired Prince, Dirty Mind and Controversy. Um, that's the early funk stuff. And you can hear where he's going, but he's still, he's, he's really raw and authentic. Yeah. See, that's the thing. I know that later, the archive, I'm like, wasn't he more or less releasing stuff album after album towards the end of his career that people weren't that excited about? So this is the stuff left over that he didn't put on those albums. You know, I'm sure there's amazing gems in there, but I, I just, I don't, I know there's thousands of hours. I guess my question is, of what interest will most of those thousands of hours be? Yeah, no, I, no idea. Committed Prince, you know, I mean, of course, yeah. some people are just going to be thrilled by it, but. It'll be interesting to hear, but like I said, I think I, I read somewhere, I can't remember where I read this, that Warners had the rights to this stuff uh. to a certain date, <laughs> after which all the rights revert to his estate, at which point one assumes box sets of this. Lord uh, only knows. Deluxe yeah. sets of these things, you know, the original album with studio outtakes or God knows what will start to appear, I would imagine. So this is Warner's, this is one of Warner's many and last bites at the Apple. As a two-disc retrospective, it's heavy on everything up through Sign of the Times and very light on everything after that. Okay, yeah, kind of focuses on them. The latest song I recognized was the Batman, Bat Dance. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's something to do with Batman, yeah. There's a lot of, all the cuts that you want from the early albums are here and then of course all the hits are here pretty much so and they do have the long version the the nine minute version of purple rain which anything else would be sacrilege so that's there you go <laughs> you don't want a purple drip man you know what a no, purple I mean, sprinkle song you want the you want the long version i mean that's yeah it's, it would be wrong to have anything else and one of prince's greatest songs is just called the long version it, it's not suitable for children don't yeah yeah he's uh I mentioned this before after he died, but that Kevin Smith riff about doing a documentary for him is is fascinating. And Kevin Smith, in that uh, it's part of one of Kevin Smith's, he, he he's done a, he has a film released of him talking on college campuses where he just takes questions from kids and, and he's fucking hilarious. He improvises and he tells stories. He's really good at this. But anyway, the the print story is like a twenty minute set piece that he does. And it's it's very good. I think I looked it up years ago, and there was like a I think a New Yorker. Yeah profile of, of a visit to his lair right which again you just it's it's a different okay. a little bit more adult than michael jackson but you're just thinking yes. wow this doesn't have any appeal wow why would you spend all that money kevin smith in that riff said he kind of sums up prince really well for me which is jesus is sex and sex is jesus and that's all rock and roll yeah that, that kind of sums it all up there. yeah sex jesus and rock and roll and that's all I really need to know. Right. But but again, that article really emphasized that sense of an alien otherness, a kind of sense that he's not the performer that that you feel like you're experiencing a piece of their life and they're sharing their emotions. And there's a kind of transparency, you know, he's the opposite of a Billie Holiday or, you know, a bleeder. He's just he's somebody that's doing this and he's really better at it than anybody else. And you're just amazed by his talent level. But I at least am rarely touched. It's just like, wow, you are a, just a, you're a one in a billion talent. Not you've got something to tell me about your life. But yeah. anyway, yeah, amazing guy. 
And that concludes Jazz Bastard Podcast number 148. As always, you can reach us at mike at jazzbastard.com and at pat at jazzbastard.com. You can drop us a line on Facebook, or if you want, look me up on All About Jazz. The podcast is available from www.jazzbastard.com, from Apple Podcasts, from Stitcher, from Mixcloud, and I'm hoping to get it mounted once again on All About Jazz. Fingers crossed that that endeavor works out. Tune in next time, as we have a very special guest, Carrie Johnsrud. She's a singer on an album based on Fred Rogers' songs. That's right, Mr. Rogers. So we're looking forward to talking to her about that. We'll fill out the rest of the episode with discussion of other vocal albums by Donna Leonhardt, Meredith Ambrosio, and Jamie Cullum. Till then, take care. Thank you.